Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week, I present teachings relevant to faith, the Bible, and everyday life, and try to address how they all relate to one another. I hope that whatever faith tradition or situation in life you come from, that you will find something of meaning here. This week, I'm going to talk about how we relate to people of different faiths. And I'm going to focus on the connections and disconnections between the world's two largest religions, Christianity and Islam. I'm doing this because of the current focus on the decades-long U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and subsequent withdrawal, which has led to the immigration of Afghanis to America, and also on the plight of Muslims in Afghanistan, repressed by the Taliban. To understand what's going on in this important series of events, it is important that we have a basic understanding of Islam. I've done considerable study of Islam over the years and traveled in Islamic countries, but I'm not a Muslim or an expert Muslim scholar and don't claim to have an intimate knowledge of the faith. For my lack of knowledge, I ask your forgiveness and welcome your input and or correction. I want to begin with two biblical passages, one from the Apostle Paul and the other from Jesus, that give us some perspectives on how Christians can relate to people of other faiths. The first comes from the address that Paul gave to a group of Greeks in Athens. Now their faith would have been called pagan from the view of Jews and the followers of Christ at the time. Paul speaks. Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. You see, Paul doesn't attack the people in Athens as dirty pagans or non-believers, as some missionaries in his position might and often did. Instead, Paul cleverly talks about the religious impulse that draws them to worship unnamed gods and idols and identifies that impulse as the same that draws him to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, we're worshiping the same God. We just don't know it. Different people will encounter God in different places 
and in different ways. In the next passage, Jesus is talking to some of his own disciples who have encountered people casting out demons without Jesus' authorization to do so. They thought that those only directly recruited by Jesus or one of his immediate disciples had that authority. But Jesus sets his disciples straight. Jesus said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. Now, although he specifies doing acts of powers in his name, he opens the door for the inclusion of anyone in God's family. In his ministry, Jesus often praises the faith of those who are not his followers and specifically says that everyone is our neighbor. So, who are our Muslim neighbors? Since there is so much to learn about Islam, and there's so much misinformation out there, I'm going to start with the basics and try to include as much relevant information as possible. First, we should use the correct terminology. When I was growing up, we talked about the followers of Islam as Muslims and Mohammedans. The term Mohammedan is rejected today because it implies that believers follow Muhammad was only a prophet and not in any way to be worshipped. And Muslim has morphed to a more proper pronunciation, Muslim. The religion that Muslims follow is thus Islam and not Mohammedism. Muslim and Islam both come from the same root as the Arabic word salam, which is used as a term of greeting and respect and is also related to the familiar Hebrew greeting, Shalom. Like Christians and Jews, Muslims trace their ancestry back to Abraham. Abraham's first son by his slave girl was named Ishmael, who God promised would be the ancestor of a great multitude. Muslims thus consider Ishmael to be the father of the Arab peoples. Jews trace their heritage back through Abraham's second son, Isaac, who was born to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Thus Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all referred to as Abrahamic religions. It is also common in today's terminology to refer to Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions instead of just Judeo-Christian. We all share a common heritage. We are truly brothers and sisters, or at least step-cousins in faith, among all three religions. 
course, ironically, the three religions have a long history of tragic conflict and mutual disrespect. Assuming that Abraham lived in the neighborhood of about 2100 BC, let's jump ahead about 2700 years to Mount Hira near Mecca, which is located in what is now Saudi Arabia. Now, this is about 600 years after Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. A 40-year-old merchant named Muhammad, who had gone up the mountain to meditate, was approached by the archangel Gabriel, Gabriel, who said to him, Recite in the name of the Lord. And recite he did. Over the next 23 years, Muhammad recited the Quran, which became the most sacred text in Islam. According to Muslim beliefs, God, Allah, spoke the words of the Quran directly to Abraham, who dictated them verbatim to scribes. The Quran to Muslims, therefore, is the direct word of God without coming to them through human contamination. The Quran became the basis and ultimate authority for all of the Islamic scriptures. It would be appropriate at this point to clear up the question of whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. The answer is yes. We both worship the God of Abraham. Although Allah sounds alien to many Christian ears, the Arabic name Allah and the Hebrew word for God in the Bible, Elohim, come from the same root. The confusion comes from centuries of religious and cultural conflict through which the common origins became obscured. After he had received his revelation and started sharing them, Muhammad developed a large group of followers. Muhammad became persona non grata in Mecca, so he and his followers were forced to flee to another oasis town called Medina in 622 CE. The date of their move to Mecca, known as the Hijra, became an important date on the Islamic calendar. It marks the beginning of the Islamic faith, just as the birth of Jesus marks the beginning of Christianity. After several years, Muhammad and his followers returned to take over the city of Mecca, destroying all of its pagan idols. Like Christianity and Judaism, Islam was established as a strictly monotheistic religion in which only Allah was to be worshipped. Muhammad never attained divine status, but was seen as the final prophet of the Lord to the Arab people. Muhammad died in 632 without appointing a successor or naming a process through which one could be chosen. Muhammad's death without a successor was a fateful event. Islam divided into two competing sects. The Shia sect believed that only descendants of Muhammad could lead the Islamic community. They believed that Ali, Muhammad's cousin, should become their leader. The other faction, the Sunnis, believed that the community should select their leader and successively appointed three of Muhammad's associates, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, as their leader, known as the three rightly guided caliphs. Ali succeeded them as the fourth caliph. 
Today, the Islamic community remains divided into Sunni and Shia branches. Sunnis revere all four caliphs, while the Shiites regard Ali as the first and only true spiritual leader. The rift between these two factions has resulted in differences in worship as well as political and religious views. Sunnis are in the majority and occupy most of the Muslim world, while the Shiite populations are concentrated in Iran and Iraq, with sizable numbers in Bahrain, Lebanon, Kuwait, Turkey, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Conflicts between the two opposing sects has often led to political turmoil and violent confrontations that continue till today. Islam can briefly be characterized by five main beliefs. First and foremost, Muslims believe in the absolute unity of God. There is only one God, Allah. No visual representations are to be made as they're seen as blasphemous. Although Christianity also perceives itself as a monotheistic religion, Muslims respect Jesus Christ as a prophet only he is not bestowed with divine status. Muslims see the Christian emphasis on the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as polytheism. Muslims believe in the existence of angels, and they are honored creatures. The angels worship God alone, obey him, and act only by his command. Among the angels is Gabriel, who brought down the Quran to Muhammad. Gabriel appears in both the Old and New Testaments. It was Gabriel, for example, who appeared to Mary to tell her she would give birth to the Messiah. Muslims believe that God revealed books to his messenger as proof for mankind and as guidance for them. Among these books is the Quran, which God revealed to the prophet Muhammad. God has guaranteed the Quran's protection from any corruption or distortion. Human beings are not to reinterpret or change God's word. Muslims believe in a day of judgment or day of resurrection, when all people will be resurrected for God's judgment according to their beliefs and deeds in this life. Final judgment is also a belief of Christianity described in the book of Revelation. The importance placed on final, final judgment varies widely among Muslim and Christian sects. Muslims believe in al-Qadar, which is divine predestination. But this belief in divine predestination does not mean that human beings do not have free will. Rather, Muslims believe that God has given human beings free will. This means that they can choose right or wrong and that they're responsible for their choices. In a similar way, Christians have long argued over the doctrine of predestination and what that says about the nature of God, trying to find ways to reconcile the conflict between human freedom and a predetermined outcome to life. Also, like Christianity and Judaism, Islam offers guidance as to how Muslims are to lead their lives. That guidance is summed up in what is called the five pillars of Islam. Faith or belief in the oneness of God 
in the finality of the prophethood of Muhammad, taking part in daily prayers, giving alms and support to the needy, self-purification and fasting, the pilgrimage to Mecca for those who are able. There is little in these five pillars, with the possible exception of the finality of the prophet Muhammad, that should cause any real conflict with the other Abrahamic faiths. Well, I have just given the briefest possible run-through of Islam. I encourage you to learn more through self-study and perhaps visiting a local mosque. Islamic communities in America welcome seekers who want to learn more about their faith. As a lifelong Christian and a Lutheran pastor, I find no reason why Muslims and Christians cannot respect one another and share our beliefs with one another for mutual growth. There are several things which keep these interactions from happening. One of the things is an unbending literalism in the interpretation of sacred scriptures of Muslims and Christians that exists among large numbers of the religion's followers. The Bible and the Quran can, can be and are weaponized to attack the faith of the other, sometimes with physical violence. There needs to be more mutual scholarship and study of scripture, which could lead to more enlightened education of ordinary believers who can't devote their whole lives to scriptural study. Secondly, political and cultural conflicts between Islam and Christianity have existed worldwide for 15 centuries. These old wounds don't die easily. There are the perennial conflicts between Jews and Muslims in Israel, the internecine warfare between Sunni and Shia Muslims in Iraq, drew the United States and other Western powers into the middle of this family conflict. Of course, issues of access to oil and strategic location of the war ended up being more significant than religious differences. The most recent conflict that we're witnessing in Afghanistan is complicated by regional quests for power. Although the Taliban are known for their strict enforcement of Islamic Sharia law, the Taliban are not a sect of Islam, but a coalition of tribal leaders seeking power. Perhaps the most significant barrier to reconciliation are our preconceptions of each other's faiths. Looking through the eyes of history, Many Muslims associate Christians with American imperialism throughout the world, intent on contaminating their world with permissive and obscene cultural influences. Admittedly, this is as much a cultural as religious issue, but the two are most always conflated. This has led to the proliferation of radical Islamic groups who use terrorism to address the threat of a godless America. Christians have historically viewed Muslims as people who conquered other nations by the sword under the command of their ruthless God, Allah. This is despite the fact that the two first adjectives used to describe God in Islam are Allah the merciful and Allah the beneficent or compassionate. The majority of Muslims conceive of their faith as one of peace, not war largely due to a lack of understanding or personal connections with Muslims, 
The sight of a woman wearing a burqa evokes images of the oppression of women, where it is a symbol, actually, of religious devotion. Since 9-11, we tend to view any outward expression of Islamic culture or religion in the context of terrorism. But here's my final takeaway from all of this. My Christian faith encourages me, no, commands me, to love and honor my neighbors, no matter what religious labels they bear or what flag they salute. While I am free to share my faith with others, I am not bound to try to convert them or coerce them to live according to my cultural and religious norms. Instead, I should try to engage my Muslim neighbors and learn who they are and what they believe. I will continue to practice my own faith by praying for peace and unity in the world and that we all will come to know the same loving and powerful God. Thank you for joining me this week. May God, the merciful and beneficent, be with you and grant you peace. Shalom. Salam.